back to the Australian Histories podcast. In episode 57 today, I want to talk more about John MacArthur and his family. I spoke about him in the Bly episodes, as he was such a pivotal character in the overthrow of Bly as the Governor of New South Wales, and indeed was influential and noteworthy in a number of ways throughout those early colonial years. Australian schoolchildren were for many decades taught about MacArthur and encouraged to see him as quite the colonial hero for his stand against the tyrant Bly, but especially for what was promoted as his fundamental role in establishing the wool industry in Australia, an industry that generated great export income and, it's claimed, facilitated quite a high quality of living for Australians for over a century. MacArthur's face adorned banknotes, and he was a celebrated pioneer to many. But a closer look at his activities during the early penal settlement, and afterwards, as the colony developed, with input from free settlers and emancipated convicts, shows us another MacArthur, and we should question some of the assumptions made about him, particularly as the sole founder of the wool industry. So let's take a fresh look at the MacArthur's and the beginnings of wool production in Australia. Stay tuned at the end, too, for another great podcast recommendation. Before I begin, thanks to Colin K, David S, Leonti B, Ian H and David McD for recently helping to fund the show. And also thanks to those who left me a lovely review or got in touch to let me know they were enjoying the show. It's always a delight to get that positive feedback. Okay, during the Bly episodes, as I was describing the less-than-cooperative and community-minded conduct of MacArthur, I did note that I had possibly been a bit harsh, drawing on only his negative and self-serving behaviours, and perhaps judging him with the sensibility lens of our 21st century. So let's see if I can find some of those redeeming qualities that must have helped propel MacArthur into semi-heroic status for so long. Let's see if he deserves the kudos that seems to have been accorded to him for setting up Australia to ride the sheep's back for all those years. If you listen to the Bly series, episodes 52 to 55, you will already have a little background on who John MacArthur was. If not, you might benefit from listening to those episodes first, before we dig a little further into the MacArthur story. Born near Plymouth, England, MacArthur was a young man on a mission to improve his status in life, and by taking a commission in the army, he hoped to quickly rise in the ranks as opportunities presented in an era of British expansion and dominance. But as various wars ended and the needs of the military changed, many who'd signed on for a particular regiment found themselves furloughed on limited pay until the next opportunity arose. And it was during a period of this kind of downtime that MacArthur met his future wife, Elizabeth. In trying to get a good sense of the man, and indeed the family, one of the pivotal sources I've used for this episode was Michelle Scott Tucker's book, Elizabeth MacArthur, A Life at the Edge of the World. And I heartily recommend it to you. It's a great read and it's full of interesting information and insights. Elizabeth came from a genteel family in the village of Bridgerule in England's southwest. Now, not to be confused with the scandalous Regency romance location Bridgerton of Netflix fame. <laughs> Though I did learn from Scott Tucker that there was a bit of raunchy behaviour going on behind the scenes in Bridgerule too. <laughs> Outrageous. MacArthur, it seems, was not considered an entirely worthy partner by her family, but they did seem well matched. However, with both of them still only 22, and with John's career far from established to prove him a reliable provider, her family did not consider the marriage a good idea at the time. 
He was described as tall, but not considered especially handsome, his face being scarred from smallpox, and while he could certainly charm some, his haughty manners tended to put others off. Throughout his life he continued to polarise people, between those who found him insufferable, imposing and overbearing, and those who became lifelong and loyal supportive friends and patrons. Despite the family's misgivings, Elizabeth sold some of her own assets, creating a sort of self-funded dowry, which would at least see their living costs covered for about a year, and Elizabeth and John were married in October of 1788. Interestingly, and quite surprisingly, in relation to a man who would duel on several occasions over matters of honour, the recently married Elizabeth gave birth to their first child, a bonny baby boy, Edward, in March the following year, far away from all her friends and family. Being only five months married, even the old excuse of the bub arriving early wouldn't wash, and it seems quite probable that they left her home parish soon after the wedding, so as the arrival date of the baby would not have been immediately noted, the friends and neighbours doing the maths. Scott Tucker suggests it was not a subject of comment from her close friends and family, though, but for the age, I'm certainly looking sideways at John MacArthur and his lack of virtuous restraint and chivalry in risking the honour of the woman he professed to love. Some suggest that being pregnant before marriage was not the shameful situation it may have been post-Victorian times, when the stricter family and religious mores were on show, but I would think that in the class Elizabeth came from, and having lived a good part of her years with a family of the local vicar, and professing quite rigid moralistic views herself, a pregnancy before a formal marriage was unlikely to have been a non-event, had it been glaringly obvious to the townsfolk. Despite the circumstances, though, theirs does seem to have been a marriage of firm affection and respect, despite the taint of a shotgun wedding. After some time in London, where John transferred to the New South Wales Corps as a lieutenant in 1789, they would set sail for New South Wales with the Second Fleet, leaving possible bridger rule gossip and any hint of impropriety behind. Reinvention would be possible, and the prospect of being a big fish in a small pond might bring them many rewards. Elizabeth seemed reticent at first to go so far away into such a primitive and vulgar situation, but she soon came around to the idea that, quote, we have every reasonable expectation of reaping the most material advantages, unquote, and so they would. She seemed on board with John's means to their desired end. Indeed, they were united in their ambition to take every opportunity that would elevate their social and financial status, even if they did have to live in close quarters to the dregs of British society for a while. <laughs> a man sensitive to slights and big on the notion of honour, as it appeared to him, John was throughout his life quick to take offence, and he was to run into trouble almost immediately on their voyage out. He became involved in an acrimonious dispute before they even left English waters, duelling with Captain Gilbert of the Neptune. The duel went ahead on land before they departed the final port in England, and fortunately both men survived uninjured. The second fleet was a very unhealthy and poorly provisioned enterprise. Disease raged through the convicts, including the women convicts who were housed very close to the MacArthur's living space. Elizabeth wrote of her servant getting a worrying fever and that baby Edward had become very ill, possibly with typhus, which was not uncommon in such crowded environments. The dispute John had with Captain Gilbert and others was related to the poor conditions he and his family were expected to endure, but there was little to be done to relieve them and they just had to make do with what was given to them on the miserable journey. 
Fortunately, they were able to transfer to the Scarborough sometime during their voyage, which would have separated them from the hated Gilbert at least, but conditions remained uncomfortable, having to share their new cabin with another officer. Baby Edward's condition continued to be a great worry, and poor Elizabeth lost the baby girl she was carrying to premature birth during the long voyage. John also became dangerously ill, contracting an unknown disease during their stop at the Cape of Good Hope. He was not expected to survive, but he did pull through after many weeks of constant care, so they would all have been happy to arrive on solid ground at Port Jackson, even though the emaciated state of the settlement there must have been a great disappointment too. Arriving in June of 1790, MacArthur had recovered well enough, but little Edward remained weak for some time, and so the family began their life in New South Wales in a personal haze of sadness and uncertainty. The penal settlement had been on the brink of starvation, and the provisions carried on the second fleet were desperately welcome, but they were of poor quality and would not have been sufficient to relieve the anxiety of the administrators at Port Jackson. Almost a quarter of the second fleet convicts had died en route or soon after arrival, and many more were in such a poor state of health that they were unable to work and contribute to the struggling outpost. And this precarious state would continue for another couple of years before the tide turned. Still, the officers of the New South Wales Corps would always be better off than the convicts, and the MacArthur's soon had primitive accommodation at least, and began making appropriate friends amongst the Marine Corps already in the colony. MacArthur's original plan was probably to take every opportunity to rise through the ranks during his posting, and then head back home to England after consolidating his career trajectory, and within the first few years he was indeed favoured by his commanding officer, with lucrative positions, including paymaster and inspector of public works. These positions also gave him substantial power and great opportunity to feather his own nest. In charge of ordering the regimental provisions, he contracted with his own brother to prepare his orders in England, allowing them both to skim profit from the arrangements. Certainly, things were beginning to look up for the MacArthurs. As we mentioned in the Bly series, in just four years' time, in February 1793, his obliging commander, Major Gross, then in charge of the settlement while awaiting the arrival of a new governor, granted MacArthur and the other officers free land, government stock and convict labour to set up their own farms, beginning with 100 acres of prime land in Parramatta, beside the original government experimental farm. Future land grants would increase their holdings there. MacArthur built a four-roomed homestead with separate kitchen, laundries and servants' quarters and named the dwelling Elizabeth Farm to honour his popular, respected and supportive wife. And that early building still substantially survives in today's built-up Parramatta. Scott Tucker notes that after their first year living in the Elizabeth Farm homestead, MacArthur had a shady overhanging roof added, a veranda, then a new innovation for the colony, but just the thing needed for a hot country like Australia. The free convict labour Gross provided allowed them to build quickly and also enabled MacArthur to clear and cultivate his land, ensuring that he would be granted the additional 100 acres for doing so. And this set them on a path of land acquisition and development, probably making a longer stay in the new colony more attractive than it had been initially. In the Bly series, I spoke about a number of MacArthur's interactions with various governors, particularly Bly, and about some of his business dealings and legal stouches. So in this episode, I'll focus more on the development of his farms, and the sheep in particular, seeing as that is the positive legacy that he's probably most associated with. 
Blessed with a great degree of self-confidence and belief, and quick to see potential for self-advancement, John MacArthur always had an eye out for lucrative opportunities, and he sought out influential supporters who could bolster his prospects throughout his life. His wife and children, particularly the sons and other members of the extended MacArthur family who would work the family businesses, supported and promoted him all the way, and we find there have been many biographies and accounts which have elevated his influence and importance over the years. There have been some negative appraisals too, of course, but generally he's been remembered for the story they cultivated, particularly as a successful wool pioneer and entrepreneur who set the young colony on its path to prosperity. While I painted MacArthur as quite an unsympathetic character, particularly in his political and business dealings with the emancipated convicts and even his junior soldiers in the corps, indeed with anyone he felt a lesser person than himself, including the governors, Scott Tucker suggests that on an individual level the MacArthurs were quite benevolent in their own domestic sphere. She suggests conditions for the convict labourers in his employ would have been substantially better than those they might have experienced elsewhere, even in employment back in Britain. They were generally well-treated, well-fed and well-housed. And I think that impression surprised me a little. MacArthur could be so callous in his actions, I think I assumed he would be a poor master. But instead, this idea of a family unit, an extended team on the farm, seems to have meant that they all worked to assure success. Parramatta, the township's name, seems to have come from the Aboriginal term Baramada or Baramatta, meaning something like place of the eels to the Darug people of the area, the Baramattagal. Forced off the lands the colonists began farming, there were periods of substantial resistance and reprisals for violence against their people, but with the arrival of the MacArthurs and others, the clearing and enclosing of land was relentless. The MacArthurs appeared to maintain friendly relations with some local Indigenous families, but their general attitudes were probably quite typical of Europeans of the time, and John MacArthur in his military role would have had involvement in various policing actions in those early years. Scott Tucker suggests their household actually reflected more diversity than most, including for a period an Aboriginal lad living there, said to have been the son, or at least the surrogate son, of the Darug warrior Pemelwoy. Pemelwoy was a leader of serious resistance over the years and remained a great problem for the British authorities across the region, frightening the bejesus out of the settlers, as David Hunt put it. The MacArthurs were supposed to have employed the first Chinese man living in New South Wales and had a young Tahitian man living with them. But perhaps the most surprising of all at that time was that they employed a French Catholic tutor. So while class seemed a big issue, perhaps race and religion were less so for the MacArthurs. Hmm. Anyway, they appeared to take care of the people in their own circle. Indeed, they seemed to have fostered some strong relationships amongst some of their workers. Edward once wrote home to his mother, passing on much affection for all at Elizabeth Farm, including the following, that they hoped all the siblings were well, and, quote, tell them we say our prayers for them when we go to bed, and drink their house every day after dinner. They unite with me in the kindest remembrances to Miss Lucas, that was the governess, and desire their remembrances to Lewis and his family and all their old friends. They do not forget Condian and his wife, nor any of our domestics. Unquote. So even the domestics were fondly remembered by the children in their letters home. 
and the MacArthurs were thoughtful to their friends. But something that I found a little odd, given their elevated condition in the colony, was that neither seemed very active in works of public good, like support for the poor, or destitute women, or orphans, or others marginalised in the society. And given their position, and often their financial status, that is an unfortunate reflection on their approach to Christian charity and community. Once again, it reads a little like they're kind to their own because it will be of direct benefit to themselves and they're less interested in bestowing their benevolence on strangers in need or indeed working to create a society that might help unless there's some direct benefit to themselves. From arriving with little but his New South Wales Corps wage, as early as 1794 John was boasting to his brother in England that the farm was producing, quote, a bounty that even he had to admit was scarcely creditable. Of this year's produce I have sold £400 worth, and I have now remaining in my granaries upwards of 18,000 bushels of corn. I have at this moment 20 acres of very fine wheat growing, and 80 acres prepared for Indian corn and potatoes. And he further listed his livestock, including 130 goats, and more than 100 hogs, and poultry of all kinds I have in abundance, (laughs) So in only a few short years the farm was certainly productive, and also pleasing, with charming gardens laid out, and orchards and house vegetables also flourishing. His domestic life was developing nicely, but his argumentative personality, described as, quote, restless, ambitious and litigious, unquote, was regularly causing disturbance amongst his regimental colleagues and the government administrators. He was gathering some very handy patrons and influential friends, such as his commanding officer Gross, but also acquiring enemies and adversaries. From Hunter onwards, MacArthur not only criticised the governors within the colony, but regularly sent undermining complaints to persons of influence in England, as we discussed in the Vlai episodes. In the earliest days, there were very few women in New South Wales, even fewer women of the class that Elizabeth felt it acceptable to mix with. Being somewhat of a social snob and being a stickler for the social mores of the time, (laughs) despite her own little premarital faux pas, she felt quite isolated and lonely for a time. Scott Tucker reminds us that while Elizabeth would have had convict or ex-convict women in her household, as his servants and housemaids, being fallen women she would not have entertained any social relationships with them. Even those that had been taken as wives or common-law partners of John's colleagues and the like would not have been considered suitable social acquaintances. So it was probably a great loss to her when John's relations with the governors soured and they were no longer regular attendees at the government house soirees, where she could at least mix with suitable ladies there. With female acquaintances in short supply, she did make some friends amongst the men of MacArthur's Corps and from the Marines, still in New South Wales, such as Lieutenant Dawes, who set up the observatory at the Sydney Heads and coached her in astronomy and botany, and Captain Watkin Tench, whose published account of Port Jackson settlement remains a fascinating view into those early days. Elizabeth had the company of Francis Gross and Elizabeth Patterson, wives of Corps officers, to call on. But in 1794, the Marsdens arrived and settled nearby in Parramatta, and Elizabeth and Betsy Marsden became firm friends. Predictably, though, in a relatively short time, Samuel Marsden and John had fallen out. So, maintaining friendships for the ladies was challenging. In time, Elizabeth learned how to navigate separate relationships with most of the wives of the men that MacArthur had seriously fallen out with. As Scott Tucker puts it, quote, 
by feigning brutal ignorance of the men's disputes, unquote. Had she not been able to do so, she may have been quite the isolated figure. While John tended to polarise the community, Elizabeth was generally very popular and well thought of, and she was a great asset to the family. Fortunately for her, as the years passed, more and more women accompanied their menfolk to New South Wales, and she would have other women friends come and go over the years too. After ten years of marriage, she had written to her friend in England, reporting, quote, How bountifully Providence has dealt with us. At this time I can truly say no two people on earth can be happier than we are. In Mr. MacArthur's society I experience the tenderest affection of a husband, who is instructive and cheerful as a companion, unquote. Even allowing for some exaggerated positivity for a friend so far away, it did seem, in those early years at least, John and Elizabeth were largely on the same page with their ambition, their joint plans and their schemes for the future, even if his countenance to outsiders may not have been so cheerful, creating angst Elizabeth had to navigate for her own social needs. Flood and drought aside, their foray into farming and agriculture generally flourished, and the colony grew less precarious in its ability to feed itself. For the MacArthurs, more opportunities arose from their ability to supply food to the government stores, and along with other financial and business ventures, such as trading in the sometimes dodgy goods, which were now coming in by ship, their prospects seemed very rosy indeed. The MacArthur family advancement continued in spectacular fashion particularly in the period that the Corps was in control of the colony between December 1792 and September of 1795, when power shifted back from the New South Wales Corps to the naval commander and new governor, Hunter. At first, John maintained the additional building inspector's job that Gross had gifted him, but after initial good relations with Hunter, MacArthur soon fell out and resigned the position though he had plenty of his own business to attend to anyway, and it may not have been much of a financial loss by then. As discussed in the Bly episodes, with some pressure exerted by MacArthur and the other corps men, Hunter was ousted before his contract was up, and Governor King replaced him in September of 1800. Around 1801, John considered selling up all they had developed in the colony and returning to England, but in the end they decided to stay on. Again, if you recall from the Bly series, we discussed MacArthur challenging his superior officer, Patterson, to a duel in September of 1801, and while such duels usually resulted in honour being restored with no injury to the persons involved, in this case MacArthur did inflict a serious injury on Patterson's shoulder, from which he took a very long time to recover. Scott Tucker noted, quote, John remained throughout his life very touchy about the subject of his honour. <laughs> Unquote. perhaps perpetually conscious of his humble beginnings and his great desire to be seen as a gentleman. For duelling with his superior, King sent MacArthur to England to stand trial, and so towards the end of 1801, MacArthur was to leave the colony after all for the first time since his arrival 11 years prior. Elizabeth had been entirely unaware of the duel until afterwards, but no doubt there would have been repercussions to her relationships with Anna King and Elizabeth Patterson in the fallout. This would be unfortunate, but with MacArthur now facing court-martial in England, she would need to stay at Elizabeth Farm managing their property until he returned. By the time MacArthur was to depart, they had six surviving children, ranging from 12-year-old Edward to 1-year-old William, and it must have been a difficult decision agreeing on what was best for the family in John's impending absence. 
Young Edward MacArthur had already been sent back to England for his education, aged eight. John decided to take little Elizabeth, then nine, and John Jr., only seven years old, with him. Young Elizabeth would accompany him during his stay, but John would join his elder brother Edward at Grove Hall Academy, both staying on to complete their education there. The younger Mary, James and one-year-old William would remain in Elizabeth's care in Parramatta. As a woman alone, without the bombastic John to arrange affairs, she did sometimes have difficulty doing business, saying of one problematic contract, quote, I have every reason to suppose that the most unfair advantage has been taken of me without my having the means of redress, unquote. But unlike the other women trying to run their businesses in the colony, her social standing meant she at least had influential friends and was able to call on many for help when needed, at one time getting advice from Matthew Flinders and sometimes calling on Captain Abbott for assistance. En route to England, John befriended the influential son of the surgeon to the Prince of Wales, adding his father afterwards to his potential patronage coterie. Fostering friends in all sorts of high places was of great value to him over the years. His court-martial took place in due course, but the Army's Advocate-General declared they really could not investigate thoroughly, and though MacArthur was censured, he was not really punished in any effective way. As Hunt put it, quote, He was gently chided for shooting a fellow officer, and King was reprimanded for sending such a useful fellow back to England, unquote. But it was clear to MacArthur that the Corps was no longer the place for him. His prospects might improve as a private citizen in the new colony, and with the support of the influential Lord Camden, he was able to sell his military commission and secure his resignation from the Corps, returning to New South Wales a civilian in a ship he now part-owned, named the Argo, in June 1805. Hunt suggested MacArthur might have seen himself as the heroic Argonaut Jason, returning in triumph from exile with the mythical Golden Fleece, <laughs> or at least the stock to create it, because the Argo also carried a few newly purchased Merino sheep, and John was intent on focusing on wool production for the British market. Along with his daughter and her governess, John had brought out his nephew, 17-year-old Hannibal, and 21-year-old Walter Farquhar, the nephew of the patron with the royal connections mentioned earlier. In preparation for their serious foray into wool production, he'd also recruited a couple of wool sorters and other labourers who were experienced in the wool industry. And to continue to develop produce at Elizabeth Farm, he acquired numerous plants and seeds, including a collection of olive trees, which he hoped would produce oil to add to his farm income. With the threat of starvation largely behind the small colony, and the need for mutton being met by the growing flocks, many sheep producers had begun turning their attention to breeding stock that would produce useful quality wool. MacArthur had already been experimenting with the so-called Spanish rams he had procured earlier from the African imports brought in by Henry Waterhouse in 1797, and with other sheep breeds, as had several others in the colony. Understanding that the Napoleonic Wars increased the need for wool in Britain, MacArthur drafted a document on, quote, the improvement and progress of the breed of fine-wooled sheep in New South Wales, unquote, where he suggested the colony could be producing fine wool in quantity within 20 years. His document had the effect of implying he was quite the authoritative player on the scene, which he intended to become now he firmly recognised the great business potential involved. Or, as the ever-entertaining Hunt wrote, 
quote, noting the domestic supply was insufficient to meet Britain's insatiable demand, MacArthur wasted no time in telling everyone that he was the only colonist who used sheep for anything other than immoral purposes. <laughs> he, John MacArthur, sheep whisperer extraordinaire, would single-handedly save the British wool industry, unquote. So he'd spent his time in England lobbying to become the big wheel in the New South Wales wool trade cracker factory. MacArthur had taken a sample of his new wool with him to assist in gaining Lord Camden's support, but Governor King had already sent earlier sample fleeces from the new colony, including some of MacArthur's, to Joseph Banks. His experts had noted that the fleeces were, quote, nearly as good as the King's Spanish wool at Oatlands, unquote, so the colonial potential was being recognised. Being able to procure fine wool from a source more loyal and secure than the Western European states would be a great comfort to England, and, having been fortunate enough to win the confidence and patronage of Lord Camden, MacArthur was granted permission to export the merino sheep he'd purchased. And Camden also lobbied for him to be gifted another huge grant of land, 5,000 acres of prime grazing land in the area known as cow pastures, on which to develop his sheep breeding program, with a further 5,000 offered if his efforts resulted in quality wool. This would be the largest land grant ever made in New South Wales. Camden also requested that MacArthur be given 30 extra convict workers, albeit to be housed and fed at his own expense, to contribute to the wool venture, and King was asked to, quote, do everything in his power to promote its success, unquote. But of course King would only be in charge there for another year or so. Bly would arrive in 1806, and trouble would not be long following. So, with his previous Spanish sheep and the new exports purchased from the British royal flock, along with Marsden, actually, who'd also managed to acquire some. MacArthur and all his supporters felt he should be able to achieve success in a short time. Elizabeth Farm had experienced some hard times in the intervening years, and difficult conditions saw the MacArthur flock numbers reduced, but they would work to build them up again over the coming decades. Edward, their eldest son, having completed his education, would return in 1806 too sailing on the same ship as Bly, actually, so you would expect that the family would have been happy and positive for some time. Unfortunately for Elizabeth in particular, though, Edward did not find the Antipodean farming life to be a pleasant one, and after supporting his father in deposing Bly, Edward returned to England and joined the army. Indeed, he had quite the distinguished career, serving in many theatres and eventually returning to Australia as a, an administrator of the new colony of Victoria for a short time and commander-in-chief of British forces in Australia from 1855. The younger John stayed in England, moving on to university to undertake law and later taking an active role in facilitating matters in England for the family business, though he died at quite a young age. James and William continued to work with John Senior in New South Wales and made running the family farm business their life's work. John Senior's painful gout and his disturbing mental disorders were often debilitating and the boys took more responsibility from their father despite him believing, quote, they have not the sufficient hardness of character to manage, unquote. If you recall from the Bly series, John had written to Elizabeth about his incapacitating bouts of mental disturbance while he was in England, and they continued worsening in later years. Scott Tucker suggests these manic-depressive episodes may today have been considered a bipolar disorder, perhaps. Certainly, he was to have periods of severe paranoia and aggressive behaviour as he aged. 
So James and William staying on the farm must have been a godsend for Elizabeth, and they did work hard. And luckily they had not inherited their father's extreme agitations, seeming to interact with those around them in a more steady manner, and the business generally continued to flourish under their stewardship. James and William planted vines and olive trees at Belgeny Farm site, expanding further to their potential income streams, and they acquired more land in the Goulburn district. As I mentioned earlier, I think, that area first known as Cowpastures was renamed Camden Park by John, in recognition of Lord Camden, who'd been so helpful in facilitating its acquisition. The MacArthur flocks were generally on excellent land, and this was considered as important as any breeding in ensuring they produced excellent wool in the colony, fetching record prices at sales in London, but others with more ambitious breeding programs, rather than a focus on retaining the purity of those merino imports, soon caught up and outperformed the MacArthur sheep for wool production over the years. While Joseph Banks championed the various merino variants as producers of fine wool, the flocks in England never really flourished as they had in France and Spain. At that time, selectively bred over the previous centuries from northern African stock, the Spanish Merino were performing well in the warm, dry climates of Spain, but they never really fulfilled their promise in cold, wet England. And they were still quite small animals, the best producing then only two kilograms of wool. So there was hope that the conditions in Australia might have been more suitable, and, as mentioned, MacArthur, Marsden and others did get special permissions to bring some of that English stock to New South Wales. In later years, the further refined Australian Merino, usually the Pepin variety, grew much larger and could produce up to 18 kilograms of wool in a season. So their early instincts were right about the Australian conditions once the right mix of genes were selected. Despite MacArthur being insistent on the value of Merino purity, it was actually the crossbreeding and selected refinements that produced the best results. So, while King had sent the troublesome MacArthur away, expecting him to languish in disgrace, MacArthur had managed to reinvent and promote himself to his new English patrons and supporters, and he returned to New South Wales, now as a civilian on a mission, requesting the implementation of the favours granted from those in power in England. Not quite what King had expected, but he had to accommodate, letting the matter drop and starting afresh with MacArthur as much as was possible. MacArthur would reunite with Elizabeth and continue developing his flock with the English wool demand in his sights. Though this task did not take all his time. As you will know from the Bly series, he remained very heavily involved in the political machinations with the Rum Corps officers, particularly during Bly's time. The first merinos to come to Australia originated from flocks in Africa, and later more useful varieties from Saxony arrived. MacArthur is said to have originally brought his first Spanish rams from amongst those early African types. Later, he was able to source a few from the king's flocks, as I just mentioned, but the experts suggest that all successful merinos in Australia would have originated from mixing with the hardy, non-merino stock that arrived in the years following colonisation, particularly the Indian breeds, which would, quote, allow King to establish the woolen industry and Marsden to pioneer the export of wool, unquote. Garin and White do not give MacArthur the credit for these early developments at all. This is an interesting take, because there is still a perception that it was MacArthur who first laid that groundwork. His Wikipedia entry subheading reads, Wool Pioneer. Certainly, he was one of several wool pioneers from that time, but does that accolade really best belong to him? Elizabeth, his sons, and generations of family that followed, most certainly built up a thriving sheep breeding and wool production business. 
and promoted the strong family origin story. The family was also instrumental in establishing an early bank and a huge agricultural shares company, though only one of those ventures was to be successful. But I think if we consider any groundwork done to pioneer the wool industry by the MacArthurs, credit should go to Elizabeth rather than John, perhaps. John being away, distracted with legal endeavours and other business ventures, or indisposed due to ill health for much of the time. But they were a successful team, for a good part of their long marriage really, a tight and supportive unit. And by the time John died in April of 1834, nearly 45 years after arriving in the new colony, many of his children had taken on important roles, along with the extended family, and the MacArthur business ventures in Australia had developed very positively, despite a number of difficult periods and setbacks. And they were never only about the wool. What kept the family from failure during periods of financial difficulty and drought was their diversification in both farming and in other external business ventures. Not all successful or perhaps ethically sound, but the MacArthurs emerged into the mid-1800s with large business, stock and land holdings and a well-polished reputation related to quality wool production, which then saw them into a long period of boom as the demand for quality fleece grew. Garin and White, in their 1985 book researching the origins of the Australian merino and wool sheep, called Merinos, Myths and MacArthurs, Australian Graziers and Their Sheep 1788-1900, suggests that the idea that MacArthur was the first to export wool, or that his flock were the only merino purebreds, was part of a substantial myth. They assert, quote, he was not the first to import merino or other sheep to Australia, he did not first conceive the idea of a wool industry, nor establish it. He was not the first to export wool, he was ignorant of animal husbandry, and his talk of purebred sheep would have been dangerous if it had not been disregarded even by him. <laughs> so, not keen to support the usual story then. And they go on to note that, quote, any credit for the control of his sheep in the formative years belongs to Elizabeth MacArthur, unquote. John had spent nearly five years away after King had sent him back to England for duelling with Patterson and was absent again nearly a decade after the Bly overthrow. John's talent lay with persuading the appropriate people to trust, fund and support him, while Elizabeth oversaw the management of the flock. We are reminded that most agricultural stock brought to Australia was initially unsuited to the climate and environments. There were very few people on those early transports with any agricultural skills, even if the conditions had mirrored the familiar English environment. And the necessity to select and breed from hardy stock was paramount. With starvation not far away in the isolated outpost, hardy sheep that could breed up and produce mutton quickly were of most interest in the early days. Wool production was not on their minds at all at first. The governor was instead charged with setting up to grow flax to provide linen and sailcloth, but even that was largely unsuccessful around Sydney. From research done on the bloodlines of the sheep, valuable to the crucial wool production in Australia, Garin and White claim the merinos brought in from Africa and England were of much lesser value to the development of fine wool here than we usually imagine. It seems likely some of the first fleet sheep were Cape Town fat-tailed sheep, good for mutton but not for fibre production, as they shed their coat each summer. Cook had noted many years earlier that these sheep were, quote, clothed with a substance between wool and hair, unquote, and had very large tails. But they failed to thrive around Port Jackson and all from the first fleet died or were eaten. 
More came on the next ships, however, including, quote, the prolific Indian sheep, fat-tailed cape sheep, both of which had hairy covering, and some English and Irish mutton sheep, unquote. Garin and White note that wild sheep are still found in Turkey and other places which still have that hairy coat, more goat-like, with that stiff hair covering of often darker colours, but with a hidden undercoat of fine wool, like down under goose feathers, I assume. The early merinos were not very fertile, but by crossing the breeds, the resulting sheep were better able to reproduce in the Australian conditions, and as an unexpected byproduct, it also resulted in increasing their wool production. Their viability further improved once better grazing areas were wrestled from the indigenous inhabitants. So the increase in stock came with a heavy price for the first Australians. But it wasn't really until post-gold rush times and into the 1860s that the kind of wool production envisaged by King, Marsden, MacArthur and others really took off. The sheep production slowly grew in the penal settlement once they had multiple breed stock and was established to be around 2,500 by the time the small number of Spanish rams arrived in 1797. At that time, there were still restrictions on the movement of wool-producing merino sheep in an effort to protect the wool manufacturing industries in Europe. King George is said to have had the earliest merino flock in England, though the French had had a great many more, which became available being spoils after the Napoleonic Wars. The restrictive act banning the exportation of merinos was finally repealed in 1824. The larger merino numbers from Saxony and other places after those restrictions lifted in the 1820s did contribute more to the experimentation with breeding. Back in 1807, the outgoing Governor King wrote, quote, Sheep in time will increase in number and quality, but fleece is not an object which everyone can yet entirely attend to. Food is a greater object, as there is an immediate demand for it, unquote. But already by the 1810s, there was more interest in the fleece King and others had been pioneering and their early breeding programs. 38 persons were at that time acknowledged to be working on improving the wool production, including MacArthur, Marsden and Simeon Lord, an ex-convict who would later establish the first private woolen mill in New South Wales. The government was interested in much of the early coarser production for use in manufacturing woolen garments locally by the prisoners in the factories, but finer wool would be more attractive for export and thus a lucrative income. As the breeding experiments developed, they found combinations which would lamb twins twice a year to quickly raise sheep production for mutton. They selected those who could better manage in local conditions and could reduce the hair the sheep produced in favour of more light-coloured wool. What we consider today as the highly productive Australian merino is mostly the Bengal sheep with merino fleece with some contribution from Cape and some English sheep like the Leicester, which increased their size, according to Garin and White. In John's later absence, after the ousting of Governor Bly, but with his input no doubt, his Spanish rams and ewes, then numbering about 100, were kept segregated at Elizabeth Farm, with the 1,500 or so crossbreeds kept on outlying properties. It's suggested this smaller flock would have been quite inbred in an effort to retain the merino purity, but the excess rams were used for crossbreeding, which, according to Garin and White, would have actually resulted in the better sheep. The resulting Australian fleeces were often considered dirty by the English standards and could reduce the prices paid. So Elizabeth and her sons are said to have pioneered a local wool cleaning process, effectively forcing the sheep to swim through a dip with handlers assisting and washing their fleece, drip drying and allowing a couple of days recovery before shearing. 
Correct wool class sorting was necessary before packing too, so as to class the fibres correctly from coarse to fine, and after his first return to England, John would bring back skilled wool sorters to help increase the class reliability of the wool bales sold. By 1810, the colony had about 32,000 sheep grazing, and 10 years later, this had grown to 120,000. As the colonists appropriated more grazing land, the flocks continued to grow, and wool production was really beginning to take off, with more than 5 million sheep by 1844, rising to 20 million by the 1860s, and doubling again the following decade. Interestingly, Garin and White note that by the 1940s, the carrying capacity of sheep in Australia had been reached at around 120 million. Any further growth was limited owing to the land destruction wreaked by the pest rabbits, which we spoke about in episode 28, The Dingo Fence. And this carrying capacity ceiling remained until the introduction of the myxomatosis virus reduced the rabbit plague and, along with some other environmental improvements, allowed then for greater stock numbers. The sheep themselves, however, continued to inflict their own brand of damage on the fragile Australian soils. Some of the earliest shepherds noted in diaries and letters how quickly the environment they moved into was altered and damaged by their flocks. The native grasses had adapted to the soft tread native animals, and the hard-hoofed introduced species cut up the vegetation and soil, many of the more delicate species being entirely destroyed and allowing for increased damage from water runoff and the like. Graziers and squatters continued to expand into new grazing areas, and in time, the Australian squatocracy developed, (laughs) many graziers becoming wealthy and prominent landholders, some to morph into influential political advocates in later decades. Quote, For this group, the English system of land and power, wealth and social position was successfully replicated. Unquote. From the ground up, and many self-made men ruled vast estates with sheep breeding programs and wool-producing infrastructure. Despite the unpromising beginning by the 1850s, Australia was already becoming a massive producer of wool. By the 1870s, the breeding experiments had produced various strains of the Australian merino, now a hardy, fertile and productive fine wool producer, growing highly attractive fleece for the international markets. The Australian Bureau of Statistics' overview of the wool industry and its history notes, quote, The Australian merino is recognised worldwide for its ability to produce pure white wool, which is soft and fine, but strong, and that at 30 June 2001, Australia had approximately 111 million sheep and accounted for around 9% of the world's sheep numbers. However, this modest contribution to the world's sheep numbers underestimates Australia's dominance in the world's top quality woolen fibre market. Australia produces over 50% of the world's merino wool, Today's total sheep flock numbers around 67 million, down from 180 million at its peak in the 1970s. A number of successful strains of the Australian merino were developed, the most notable being the Pepin strain, developed in the 1860s by the Pepin brothers in the Riverina district of New South Wales, producing 20 times the amount of wool as those early MacArthur merino rams. One last snippet about wool production that I found interesting was, quote, There are four main types of merino in Australia. These are the superfine merino, producing 18 micron fibre diameter or less, 
the fine wool merino, 19 micron fibre diameter, the medium wool merino, 20 to 22 micron fibre diameter, and the strong wool merino, 23 to 25 micron fibre diameter. Climatic, geographic and management factors determine the distribution of these types throughout Australia. In general, finer walled sheep grow best in the cooler areas where feed and sheep can be managed intensively. Stronger walled sheep, on the other hand, grow better in the harsh, hot, low rainfall areas where properties are large and the level of management is less intensive." Unquote. Macy, who wrote of the wool industry and its decline, notes, quote, In mid-20th century, the Australian wool growing industry was the greatest wool economy the world had ever seen, unquote. Since its blossoming after the 1850s to its collapse by the 1980s, it was the backbone of the nation's economy as its largest export earner and wealth builder for most of those years. Quote, the industry helped shape modern Australia, the national character, and the country's broader patterns of development since the 1840s. A merino ram's head adorned the shilling coin, and wool industry icons were featured on banknotes. Wool growers sat on the reserve bank, on the tariff boards, and their often flamboyant leaders were famous Australia-wide. Unquote. At least one of our former Prime Ministers came from a successful sheep farming dynasty. Malcolm Fraser spent most of his early life at Balpool Nyang, his father's sheep station of 15,000 hectares, that's about 37,000 acres, near Moulamine in New South Wales. Later, they would sell up there and move to Nareen in the western district of Victoria, which Malcolm would take over and run with his wife, Tammy breeding merino sheep and Hereford cattle until they retired in 1997. Certainly MacArthur, as one of several early graziers and sheep breeders, had a hand in the early development of the wool industry, but he should not be given individual credit as the single forefather of Australian wool development and production. Many families contributed to the breeding experiments, like the Kings, the Marsdens, Lords, Rileys, and later the Pepins, amongst others, in taking a final look at the MacArthurs, particularly at Elizabeth, I'm with Scott Tucker in thinking she was likely just as keen on the advancement and success the new colony could offer as John was, and probably turned a blind eye to his many dodgy business ventures, given the rewards they brought the family. While she may not have enjoyed the social fallout her husband's behaviour wrought, I think she was happy with the elevation their colonial life brought for the family, and they did seem like a pretty unified and successful couple in those early years at least. Quote, their love for one another and their shared ambitions had seen the couple successfully weather a great many storms. Unquote. Many of John MacArthur's papers and letters survive, including some written to Elizabeth from England, which include an affectionate language, <laughs> though there's plenty of instruction and coaching in there as well. He appears proud of her and remembers to speak gratefully of her part in their success. Quote, I am perfectly aware, my beloved wife, of the difficulties you have to contend with, and I am fully convinced that not one woman in a thousand would have the resolution and perseverance to contend with them all, much more to surmount them in the manner you have so happily done. Unquote. But we don't have much to go on to judge her inner feelings, really. John never really mellowed, dueling with his superior officer Patterson, as we discussed in the Bly episodes, and participating in at least one other duel with Fervaux of the Corps, over him implying that MacArthur had taken government goods for his own use after the Bly coup. 
Certainly, he would have been difficult to be around in his more obvious periods of mental instability, and it does seem later in life she may have been relieved not to have spent all her time with him, relying on her boys and the other family members to help keep the farm operating, while she stayed at other properties somewhat protected from John's increasingly erratic behaviour. As for his relationships with the post-Bly governors, I think you can guess how they proceeded. Despite the warm relationship Elizabeth had forged with the incoming Macquarie's, it was not too long after MacArthur's return that he was again irritated by their support for the emancipists and, like Bly, alienating the self-made men such as himself, the elite of the colony. Following the usual predictable destabilising tactics, Macquarie was eventually recalled and replaced by Governor Brisbane. Brisbane enjoyed the usual short-lived period of equanimity and warmth before MacArthur turned against him too. Brisbane was recalled and Darling took his place. And it was to Darling that MacArthur boasted, quote, he had never yet failed in ruining a man who had become obnoxious to him, unquote. Darling would have quickly become aware of what that might mean for him, stating MacArthur was, quote, a man of strong passions and observes no medium in anything, he is equally ardent in his exertions to serve as he is to injure, unquote. noting only weeks later, quote, He is now like a wayward child and remains at home brooding, but I expect is not altogether idle. Unquote. It was becoming clearer from the mid-1820s that even for John his behaviour was becoming unbearable, alternating between frenzied and catatonic. Elizabeth wrote to John Jr. in England, describing the chaotic building projects John Sr. was undertaking being planned, redrawn, partially built and then demolished. Quote, Your poor father cannot do anything in a quiet, orderly way. Unquote. The family were becoming increasingly concerned and John's standing in the community was slipping. His odd behaviour was becoming a joke, even being ridiculed in the papers. John had previously got the family involved in the new Bank of Australia and they had set up the Australian Agricultural Company, a joint venture with, with local and UK investors. The bank was to go on to fail spectacularly, bankrupting a lot of people, including some in the extended MacArthur family. The Australian Agricultural Company struggled for some time, and the MacArthurs had to step back, allowing other managers in, but the AAG eventually prospered, and today it appears to be primarily a feedlot or beef-producing enterprise. Scott Tucker wrote that by 1828, according to the census data for that year, the MacArthurs then owned 17,000 hectares, that's about 43,000 acres, the second largest landholding in the colony at that time, only pipped by the aforementioned Australian Agricultural Company. They were running 14,000 sheep, 172 horses and 200 cattle. Their wool sales were strong, making around £2,000 profit that year, and the following decade these profits would double. Profits were also being made from their crops, produce and other livestock. In 1830, they'd shorn 17,000 sheep and exported 18,000 kilograms of wool. That's £40,000. The quality continuing to improve thanks to the stewardship of the boys. By the late 1820s, with John's behaviour more difficult and unpredictable than ever, any warm, loving relationship between John and Elizabeth had pretty much dissolved, often living and socialising separately. And when not involving himself in the political activities or continuing litigation, John spent his time planning and supervising the before-mentioned building projects at Elizabeth Farm or in constructing the new Camden Park Great House. 
Sometimes volatile or manic, other times sinking into depression, John was requiring more supervision than ever, and all the extended family were involved in keeping the business affairs running smoothly while assisting in keeping John out of harm's way. Despite her need to stay away for her own health, Elizabeth always remained caring of John, writing, quote, I hope you have recovered from the oppression you were suffering from yesterday, and believe me to be my dearest MacArthur, ever your affectionate wife, unquote. By 1831, John's behaviour was becoming untenable. He was paranoid and even violent, and after one disturbing incident, where he was brandishing pistols and swords, the family doctor was called to help restrain him, and he was soon after declared insane and confined to a few rooms where he was looked after by the long-standing servants. William and James became his official guardians, taking turns to stay with him, in 1833, with only intermittent improvement, they moved him to Belgeny Farm, in the privacy of the Camden Park estate, where he died in April 1834, and was buried on a hilltop there. Elizabeth had returned to live at Elizabeth Farm after John was relocated, and she resided there until her death, while on holiday in Watson's Bay with her daughter Emmeline, in February of 1850, just as the wool boom and the gold rushes were about to take off. She was buried next to John at Camden Park. There was apparently some discord over the conditions in John's will, with the majority of his estate being left to Edward as the eldest. This had been flagged as unfair before his death, and he did offer to redraw the will so that the two brothers largely doing the work in New South Wales would be better represented. But he had already been declared insane, and they felt their brother Edward would do the right thing by them when the time came, so they left the documents as they stood. As happened so frequently, though, what Edward thought fair and what the Australian brothers considered fair differed quite substantially, and in time, along with changes and differing aspirations in the extended family, various rifts opened up in the previously tight-knit family. Scott Tucker suggested the MacArthurs had acquired some debt by the 1830s, and as the colony sunk into an economic depression and prices for their produce was falling, all the members of the family struggled to keep afloat with their various peripheral ventures. And she notes that at this time, the MacArthurs were no longer considered the premier sheep breeders in the colony. Others had developed hardier, larger and better breeding stock, which could also provide high-quality fleece. Their focus on the pure bloodline had left them behind. In 1843, the Bank of Australia that the MacArthurs had been instrumental in setting up to rival the Bank of New South Wales collapsed following the 1830s decade of depression. Now, by the way, Wiki tells me another Bank of Australia-related point of interest, which occurred earlier in September of 1828. Thieves tunnelled into the Bank of Australia in Lower George Street in Sydney and stole about £14,000 described in 2008 as the largest documented bank theft in Australian history in relative value. <laughs> so that wouldn't have helped their liquidity. Members of the MacArthur family lost more capital and the future success of the family businesses must have looked very precarious at that time. They remained asset rich, but cash flow was problematic as sales of stock and produce failed to find profitable buyers. The endurance and eventual success of the MacArthur family enterprises over the years meant they maintained their link to those first years as the wool industry developed, and that proved to be a very valuable endorsement for allocating the credit for the Australian wool industry to John MacArthur. The years following John's death were rocky, but the family managed to settle and keep the business together, and it was passed down through the generations and maintains a family connection even today. 
Like all primary producers who can navigate through hard financial times and the Australian cycles of drought and flood, such longevity is impressive, so I tip my hat to MacArthur and his descendants for their commitment. Eldest son Edward returned to the Antipodes with his army posting, and I read in Scott Tucker's book his regiment was involved in subduing the Eureka Rebellion. And we covered the Eureka Rebellion story in episodes 29 to 33. Edward MacArthur returned to England in 1860 and was knighted two years later at the age of 73, the same year he married at last. He died ten years later and left his Elizabeth Farm share to his surviving brother William. William remained living at Camden Park, continuing to diversify, introducing dairy. The vineyards he planted produced over 60,000 litres of wine and brandy each year, and he was instrumental in promoting all manner of Australian goods at international fairs over the years. He was also awarded a knighthood, before Edward actually, in 1856, along with numerous other accolades. He served in the New South Wales Legislature from 1864 until October 1882 when he died, His interest in botany and gardening showed in his experiments and advances in the gardens of Camden, developing various new plant varieties. James also lived at Camden, but he died much earlier, aged only 69, in 1867. He had also been elected a member of the New South Wales Parliament since the 1840s, resigning in 1859 and refusing the knighthood offered him, though I don't know what prompted that. In 1866 he returned to politics but died soon afterwards. The family by then was truly established as Australian colonial aristocracy. James and Emily's daughter, Elizabeth, eventually inherited the MacArthur family holdings, diversifying further. She seemed much more interested in giving back to the community than her grandparents had been, becoming a patron and benefactor of various charities and societies, including, before her death in 1911, contributing to a charity which would become the local Red Cross branch at Camden in 1914. She was instrumental in assembling the family documents, which her daughter helped compile into The MacArthurs of Camden, published in 1914. Elizabeth Farm was sold in 1881 and the land surrounding subdivided into quarter-acre blocks. Fortunately, the building was retained and it was later sold, together with its remaining 2.5 hectares or 6 acres, in 1903 to William Swan, a schoolteacher who was aware of the social and historical value of the building for our heritage. His family lived there with very little change to the fabric of the building until 1968 when they generously set up a trust to preserve the building into the future. These days the building is cared for by the Sydney Living Histories Museum. The Camden Park House also survives and remains in the extended MacArthur family hands. Belgeny Farm was carved off the MacArthur Estates in 1973 and sold to the New South Wales Government for preservation in 1984 and now houses the oldest colonial farm buildings remaining. Scott Tucker writes that some of the MacArthur's early flock bloodlines have been maintained as an inbred closed bloodline for over 200 years now and the Elizabeth MacArthur Agricultural Institute maintains a flock of around 250 sheep descendants. (laughs) She also noted that the electoral division of MacArthur, encompassing the area around Camden Park, was named for Elizabeth and John MacArthur. John MacArthur and his legendary sheep featured on the $2 banknote between 1966 and 1988, and Elizabeth's visage adorned a commemorative $5 coin in 1995. I've never seen that one, but I will try and find an image for the webpage. Now this episode, I have another great podcast to recommend you try. 
It's called Destination History. Chantelle traverses the historical landscape, discovering the stories behind local and international destinations we know. Each place has their own narrative to tell, and Destination History highlights these interesting places and the associated characters. I particularly loved listening as an armchair traveller while we were all in lockdown, being able to picture the Taj Mahal, for example, as its construction history was retold, or learning about the vast complex that holds what we know as the Terracotta Army. I'll place a link to Destination History's webpage in my reference list. So we'll leave the MacArthur's and the wool industry there now, and I plan another standalone episode next. This time a more thrilling and sensational story that might boost my ratings up there with the true crime podcasts. (laughs) No, that's never going to happen. But it should be one to look out for, and I'm looking forward to doing the research. So take care, and I'll talk with you again soon presenting a completely different story from our past. Cheers. Cheers.